You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, I think it was really wonderful to have the U.S. Open in our backyard last weekend. Wasn't that fun? Did anybody get to go down there and actually see it? There were some folks in the morning. Okay, all the rest of us are just reading. I, I see a hand back there. Okay, very cool. Uh, but... Uh, to have the U.S. Open here, to have these great golfers in town, and there was a little bit of a drama. For me, the highlight wasn't uh, the victor. The highlight was a guy named Jason Day, who uh, had a struggle with chronic vertigo that showed up on the course. Friday, he collapsed. It was actually quite frightening. He was coming down a hill towards the last hole and just hit the ground and just didn't move. And uh, it's sort of horrifying. You wonder what in the world is, is going on. Um, and then he got up and putted out that hole. The headline that night, the Wall Street Journal, was Jason Day playing through the vertigo in four-way tie for lead at U.S. Open. His caddy said uh, well, he just uh, put his head down and kept walking one foot in front of the other. So the next day, Saturday, Jason Day shows up again, and so does the vertigo. But he keeps playing. Again, putting one foot in front of the other, 18 holes. By the end of the day, he would birdie three of the, of the last four holes to finish 68, two under par, with vertigo. And as Caddy said, this was the greatest round of golf I have ever watched. And it was great. In a field of players who could do nothing but whine about the conditions of the course... Here was one guy with debilitating vertigo playing great golf. Now, for me, that's real strength. That is real strength. Strength in weakness. And Jason Day gives us an opportunity, I think, tonight to think about the kind of strength in our lives. Do we have the kind of strength that when adversities arise, uh, we sort of wither and wilt? Do we have the kind of strength that requires every condition to be just so and perfect? in order for us to move ahead? Or do we have the kind of strength that can face adversity, that actually gets stronger through adversity? Do we have the kind of strength that gets back up when it's been knocked over or that can play through the vertigo? Well, it's not surprising as James has given us this great letter that invites us to translate our faith into practice. He concludes the letter with a paragraph on strength. Because he knows we'll need it in order to obey all that Jesus is calling us to. But what's surprising to me is that to give us an idea of what that will look like, he turns to an Old Testament figure, a ninth century prophet by the name of Elijah. And I want to tell you just a little bit about Elijah tonight because I don't think you can get the strength that James is talking about unless we pay attention to his primary illustration, Elijah. He was a man, in James's reading, who was famous for prayer. He's going to tell us about his prayers. So would you open up your Bible to James chapter 5 and uh, look with me at verses 13 through 20. If you've got a um, if you didn't bring a Bible, go, grab the black book and the rack in front of you there, please. And turn to page 983, and you'll, you'll see verse 13 there. Um, I'd like, if you're able, to you to stand with me. And as, as an act of worship, as an act of, of honoring the Lord Jesus, would you read this text aloud with me together? And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. 
And if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. James 5, verse 13. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Well, um, prayer was a part of my very brief and utterly unnotable athletic career. Um, for a brief time, many, many years ago, I uh, rode on a crew. And one night, our coach gathered the crew together in a room to give us a pep talk. And part of it, he gave us each awards. And uh, he gave me this award. It's the Courage Award. It's actually an ashtray. But I got the Courage Award. He gave this to me with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, actually. Uh, our uh, race was the biggest, the, the race that was happening in a couple of days was the biggest race of all of our lives. We were competing internationally. We were in England. And uh, the, the coach had given us each postcards. We were supposed to send these back to our supporters, thanking them and updating them. And I didn't know the, the coach was going to read them, but I had written on mine, please pray for us. He thought that was funny. Because in rowing, strength is measured by pounds and inches, technique, and technology. But here's one of his boys asking for prayer. To him, it was a sign of weakness. So he read my card to the rest of the crew. I turned bright red. We all laughed a little bit. And he said, George, I give you the courage award, as though to say, buck up. We don't need prayer. Now, I want to tell you tonight, you and I are surrounded by a culture that thinks prayer is a sign of weakness. James would disagree. For James, it's a means of great strength in your life. It's actually, it's actually a way to live with great courage uh, to pray. Now, James gives us this example of Elijah. And Elijah prays twice. Do you notice in James, he uh, highlights two prayers, one in verse 17, one in verse 18. I want to give you two aspects of of prayer that allow us to experience strength. That strength is the key issue is in verse 16. It's visible in verse 16. So just I hope you'll keep your Bible open this evening. And would you look at the second half of that verse? Because I want to actually give you my own translation. Uh, this is a good translation, but I have different words for it. It says in our Bible, the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Verse 16. 
looking at the Greek and pondering it, studying it this week, I wanted to use different words for that. And here's how I would say it. And you might want to write, write this down. Great strength is put to work by the prayer of a righteous person. I think that's what James is saying. Great strength is put to work by the prayer of a righteous person. And why do I say it that way? Well, two reasons. First of all, I put strength in the beginning of the sentence, right where James says. That's his word order. He's focusing on strength. It's there at the beginning of the sentence. And then he uses a word that our translation renders effective, effective, but it's a stronger word. It's actually a verb that James uses. It's the verb energeo, which is the word from which we get our English engine or energize or energy, energeo. It means putting something to work. Great strength is put to work by the prayer of a righteous person. Wow, this is really an invitation. Except for me, honestly, I've read this verse for years, and I've always been a little bit put off by the end of, of the verse because he says, prayer of a righteous person, and that has always troubled me because I don't see myself as a righteous person. So I thought, well, there's great strength for somebody out there, but I don't know that there's strength for me. So I want to spend most of my time tonight talking to you about what James means when he describes the person who's praying as a righteous person, okay? So would you follow me through that? And I'm going to look at these two prayers, both of which James brings into the text in the life of Elijah. And in the first one, we are going to see that you are an agent of the kingdom. Let's look at this. Uh, in verse 17, it says, Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Now you go, that's the weirdest prayer. Does this guy live in Seattle? Is it March? What's going on? Who would, not, who would pray for no rain for three years? What I want you to see is that this is a kingdom prayer. Elijah sees himself as an agent of God's kingdom. This is a profoundly countercultural prayer. That's where we're going. Look, if we go back to the original story, we first meet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. And you don't have to turn, but if you want to look at that, it's on page 282. Here, in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah's praying. In fact, what he's doing is he's telling the king that he has prayed and that it's not going to rain for three years. Now, what's going on? Well, the king happens to be Ahab. Happens to be the worst king that Israel has ever had in its history. This is the seventh king. And Ahab has basically given the country over to the Canaanite Storm God. His name was Baal, the God of the storms. Why? Because Israel knew they needed strength. And tragically, they didn't look to God for this strength. They looked for something that seemed cooler in their culture, the storm God. And uh, the result of this was an unfolding of economic, social injustice, and growing militarism inside of Israel. The culture was corrupting around King Ahab and his storm god. And so here comes Elijah. He sees himself now as an agent of the kingdom. Ahab is the king of Israel, but I got to tell you, Ahab, there is a greater king over Israel, the Lord himself. And I am going to a higher authority. I'm going up a notch above your head, and I'm going to ask that king to withhold rain. Why? Because if it didn't rain for three years, then Ahab's power base would be radically destabilized. 
because his whole grip on power assumed that, that, that Baal could deliver the crops. So this is why uh, this tragedy of three years of famine becomes the means of destabilizing and transforming the culture. So notice, prayer embracing God's end, this is about the, the, the goal of God, the kingdom of God, puts great strength to work. God's end. This is why Jesus teaches his followers to pray, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. When you pray that prayer, you are an agent of God's kingdom. You are saying, I yearn for the world to be the way the world is supposed to be. I am so sick of all the news. I'm so broken inside by that. So I pray a countercultural prayer. I begin to wonder, maybe I'm seeing why there's not a lot of power in my own prayer life. Because my own prayer life is so often filled with just like a, a laundry list. It's like I've climbed on a Santa's lap. And I've got a little bit of time here, God, to tell you what I want you to do. But Elijah knows prayer is really more about what God wants to do uh, in the world. James has already said, by the way, he, he said in uh, verse four, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he says, You do not have because you do not ask. He's talking about prayer. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. And James has spent the first four and a half chapters of this grand letter inviting his readers into a countercultural community, a subversive community that subverts the injustices of their day with the, the, the good news of the gospel, right? This is a community that's asked to bring joy into suffering. To use their money with generosity to honor the poor. To use their tongues not to curse but to bless. To bring reconciliation into conflict and to live with expectancy as J.J. taught us last week. A countercultural community that prays, thy kingdom come. I've been reading Martin Luther King Jr.'s book, uh, Strength to Love. I highly recommend this book. It just feels very timely to me. And I want to read a section because... His strength came from a community that was a counterculture. Martin Luther King Jr. referred to the church as the beloved community. I love that, the beloved community. And he said the church ought to be the conscience of the culture. Here's what he writes. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour, and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down with our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom. But not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. You see, when that beloved community prays, it unleashes, it activates, it energizes great strength. Great strength is put to work by the prayer of a righteous person, and you are an agent. We, corporately, are an agent of God's kingdom. 
Let's look at his second prayer here. It's in verse 18. James continues, back in chapter 5, James. Then he, that's Elijah still, prayed again. And the heavens gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. Here we see, not only are we agents of God's kingdom, but we are righteous people. Now, I need to explain that, because I already told you that I I don't feel that I am a righteous person. And in the Bible, generally, there are two basic meanings to the word righteous. It means justice, oftentimes in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it oftentimes means justified. A righteous person in the New Testament is not somebody who lived a right life. Jesus is the only one who's righteous in that sense. In fact, in James chapter 5, verse 6, the only place where James uses the word righteous, other than right here in verse 16, it's used of Jesus. Jesus was righteous in the sense that he lived a right life. He wasn't justified. He was just just. And now, you, though... And I, through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in the one who gives us what what the Reformers called an alien righteousness, a righteousness that we don't generate, but a righteousness that we receive by faith through the work of Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous. We're declared righteous by a gracious God. Elijah understands something of this. It's cloudy, it's murky, but we see this in this second prayer. Now, if you are looking in 1 Kings, you want to flip over to page 284. Here in 1 Kings 18, verse 42, uh, we have this second prayer. What's happened? Well, the whole contest with Baal, do you remember the two altars and all that drama? And uh, all the people... They kind of turned and they said, oh my gosh, the Lord is indeed our God. The Lord is indeed our God. They say it twice. And then the people of Israel fall down on their faces. What's that? That's an expression of absolute contrition and humility and expectancy that God will lift them up in his grace. Elijah, when he prays, takes the same posture uh, We see in verse 42, Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. There he bowed himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. Why? Because now he's leaning into the grace of God. Now he he knows that this God will bring rain to a people that don't deserve it, that have broken covenant with him, that haven't kept faith with him. He's imploring God to give these people a second chance, a do-over, and he knows this prayer will be answered. Grace. The prayer embracing God's means puts great strength to work. Justice is the end. Grace is the means. The prayer in the first instance is a prayer of idealism. This is the way the world ought to be. The prayer in the second case is a prayer of realism. Well, this is who we are, and we depend on your grace, Jesus. And and he gives us grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Grace is when God looks at you and sees all the stuff that you've done that doesn't bring him glory and says, you are righteous just because I say so. That's the good news, friends. You are righteous. And the prayer of a righteous person puts great strength to work. You see, uh, the problem is that many of us live so much either in our shame 
Oh my gosh, I've been so bad. Or we live in our pride, you know, I don't really think I need much from God, that we don't pray. We don't pray in faith. We have very little expectancy. James says, no, not shame, not pride, grace. Stand right here in the middle before Jesus Christ and let him lift you up. He will raise you up. He's calling a community to this kind of grace. Did you notice that? Look again at James 5 in verse 16. Remember, he says, the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. What's the sentence before that say? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. What's the sentence before that? Anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. The context of this is a righteous person not who's lived righteously, but who's been declared righteous because they have brought their sins to the Lord and been healed. And the Lord will raise you up, James says. The Lord will raise you up and you will be forgiven. God says, don't bring me your deeds. Your neighbor needs your deeds. You bring me your needs. You bring me your failure. You bring me your addictions. You bring me your brokenness. You bring me your rebel heart. You bring me your stained fingers. You bring those to me because I am the only place that you can find absolute security and love through grace. Grace is strength. By the way, I got to say, Martin Luther King Jr. understood this. Dr. King did not idolize himself in the ways that we do. And a lot has been written about this. This is helpful. By the way, um, a week before his death, as an expression, I think, of his the awareness of his own inadequacy, he says this, Martin Luther King is finished. In a moment of exhaustion, and pain and fear and self-doubt, Martin Luther King could say that. He could say it because he was living a life that depended on grace, not upon his strength, but rather the strength of his Savior. One writer writes, what made King's eloquence so ferocious and his courage so stirring was that like the Memphis garbage workers he came to represent, he was just a man. And that's what James is saying about Elijah. Elijah is just a man like you and me. He's just a man like you. Don't put him up on a pedestal. Don't put James up on a pedestal. Don't put the first century church up on a pedestal. What was happening then is happening here right now among us. You are agents of the kingdom who are deployed by the grace of God. Do you believe that? When you pray, great strength is put to work. Well... Maybe I've said enough about the, those two prayers. Let me just remind you of who James was. James had two nicknames. One of them was James the Just. It's another way of saying James the Righteous. But the other one was Camel Knees. Camel Knees. It was a reference to his prayer life. The days in which James lived were troubled days for the Church of Jesus Christ. They began to be persecuted. And there was also a famine around Jerusalem at that time. So they were very, very poor. And if James were to pull out the Jerusalem news and read the headlines, he would get the same kind of vertigo that you and I do. But James learned how to pray through the vertigo. Again and again, multiple times a day, he would go up to the temple and join the people of God and pray powerful prayers, just like Elijah had. And he did so so often that a second century historian 
said, his knees became hard like those of a camel. So I want to ask you tonight to think about your own life, think about our shared experience as a church. What gives you vertigo? What makes your head spin? Are you willing to join me in a community of people that don't celebrate our strength and our righteousness, but celebrate our Savior and His grace? A place where people can be radically vulnerable with one another because they know there's real grace in our midst in Jesus Christ. This is what will attract people back to Jesus. That's what James says when he talks about wandering sinners coming back to the church. The the world around us is so desperate to see an authentic, vulnerable church that's real about their brokenness, but even more real about their Savior. Oh, yeah, one last thing about Elijah. I love this part. That second prayer, he tells the king, I hear the sound of rushing rain. Been a drought for three and a half years. There's no water anywhere. But he knows he's going to pray. And he's got faith, and even more than his faith, he has hope. Sound of rushing rain. We don't hear anything, Elijah. Elijah sends his servant, I want you to go to the horizon and look for a cloud. Servant goes out there, comes back, he says, "Uh, Elijah, I don't see anything. There's just a sunny day. Elijah says, go look again. Seven times which is the number of completion. You keep looking until you see a cloud and then the size of a hand, it grows, and pretty soon there's a cloud. But if you can't find hope for your situation, your life, or this world right now, I want you to look to the horizon and listen to the promises of God and Jesus Christ and begin to hear the sound of rushing rain. Well, I kept this ashtray. Uh, and I wondered today, is this the first time an ashtray has ever been on the pulpit uh, during uh, preaching at University Presbyterian Church? I want to be remembered for something. I keep this ashtray on my desk. It's a reminder to me that I can live with courage. Not because I'm strong, but frankly because I'm weak. And I know that Jesus meets me in my weakness in a special way. And it calls me to pray and to unleash great strength. Will you join me in that prayer? And can you hear the sound of rushing rain? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for giving us what someone called the dignity of causation. That as your image bearers in the world, you want us to be co-creators and in some sense co-redeemers. Not that we can add anything to the perfect work of Jesus Christ, but that, that we can embody that grace for one another, for our neighbors and for the world is a great gift to us. We pray that you will have a, give us the courage to live as truly righteous people who've been made righteous and who begin over time to live more and more righteously and to call the culture to the new life that we find in our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.